One of the things that happens in in policymaking, I found, Billy, is that we tend to talk about it in silos. You know, healthcare is over here and housing is over there and, and roads and bridges are someplace else, when in fact, in real life, all of those things interconnect. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. Uh, and this week, we have a guest, my governor, at least was my governor when he was governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick. And we are so grateful, Governor Patrick, that you're able to take the time to join us. Billy, thank you. It's great to be with you. Deval Patrick was governor of Massachusetts from 2007 to 2015. I think probably the best governor our state has ever had. Oh, uh, listen to you. Uh, no, I, I really do. I I've really already do. You made such the a difference podcast. here. You don't, you don't well, no, I'm trying to get you to run again. <laughs> it's not the <laughs> podcast. I want you back in public office. Wow. That's kind of you. Thank you. So, or maybe not. <laughs> and, well, but ho- hopefully, hopefully that happens because we, we honestly, we need leaders like you. I think we desperately need them, but I, I, I am grateful that you could take the time to join us. And, you know, we often have chefs and restaurateurs who have been involved with Share Our Strength uh, on the podcast. We talk about food. Uh, that won't be our principal subject today, but I hear that you're a pretty good man. cook. You're a pretty good cook. What, do, what, what are your food influences? Where'd you learn to cook? Well, you know, it's interesting. My mother was a terrible cook. And um, I think for her, just frankly, being overwhelmed with trying to put it together, you know, we were, uh, we grew up uh, poor. Uh, we were on welfare. She was uh, separated from my uh, from my dad, and 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 she was just trying to figure out how to get it together and get her uh, get her um, her uh, GED and and into the workforce, which she ultimately ultimately did. My grandmother, with whom we uh, we lived, was a pretty good cook, and um, and about her, I think it was mostly the convening of everybody. Um, Though we lived in the same place, except for holidays in the same apartment, except for holidays, Billy, we we sort of ran separate households. They had separate shelves on the refrigerator and all that stuff. But when holidays came around, uh, there was a sense of plenty, a sense that there was room enough at the table for everybody. And I think for me, it was the kind of food is love um, impact um, which uh, left a mark, and then there were others as I was growing up who uh, who were all about that as well. Well, Governor, we have something in common because my mom, who was a wonderful, loving mom, was a terrible cook. <laughs> uh, our, our vegetable dish was, uh, if you remember, when uh, potato sticks came in cans, she yes. would open up a can and pour it into a frying pan with butter uh, and olive oil <laughs> so and, and fry up the uh, the potato sticks. And my sister always, who sometimes does this podcast with me, gets very upset when I denigrate my mother's cooking, but she, she was a fabulous mom, but she was a terrible cook. Man, so, I didn't know peas were green. <laughs> until later in life, I thought they were the gray color that came out of the out of the can at that time. Uh, so, what's your specialty? I don't know that I have one. I, I like um, I like to go to the farmers market or to the uh, you know to the grocery store and see what's fresh and what sort of mood you're you're in. I'm I'm uh, I like slow cooking, you know, stews and and uh, and savory things like that. I also like sort of bistro cooking. I like home cooking, as we call it, soul food uh, as well, although there are folks in my family who are better at it than, um, than I. And out here in Western Massachusetts, where we spend time, you know, I keep bees and we grow, we grow our own vegetables and um, we have a bunch of apple and peach and pear and plum trees. So there's, I'm learning about um, preserving and jam making and all that stuff as well. Wow. Okay. So you, you are the uh, 21st century gentleman farmer. <laughs> yeah. I think it's funny because the, 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 you know, we are, we are in a farming community and I've made friends with a bunch of farmers and, and they, I'm a, I'm a constant source of amusement for them. They say things like, you know, step away from the tools and we'll all be fine. <laughs> um, you know, I have a, I have a little tractor, which is just, you know, a thing that they, uh, which I just got and I've craved for years. And uh, it's like, you know, I'm a, like I said, I'm sort of a source of amusement. Everybody helps, you know, we all help each other. And, um, and that's, I think, again, it's part of the sense of community 
um, that goes around and comes around food in my case. Well, and this has been one of those times, uh, certainly in our family, like a lot of others that I've heard and read about during the pandemic where, you know, we started to do some home gardening. We built a vegetable box. I didn't know that peas were green either growing up, but we're now growing them and we're growing arugula and spinach. And it's just, you know, it's like six by six uh, square box. Of, it's amazing so, how much so. you can get out of it too. It's, it's incredible. And yeah. it is community building because we find ourselves texting neighbors about, you know, what do you do when the arugula has little holes in it, like the insects have been getting at. And, you know, we've got this community of people that we rely on. And, you know, one of the reasons we talk about food so much on this particular podcast is because Share Our Strength's work, of course, is hunger and, and poverty, but particularly hunger in the United States. And as you know, the, the, the pandemic also raised awareness of hunger uh, to levels, frankly, that we hadn't seen before and enabled us to generate the support to really make a pretty big difference. But because with schools being closed, and that's a principal source of feeding so many uh, kids who were vulnerable and from low-income families, and with uh, so many people unemployed and the, you know, kind of the iconic pictures on the evening news of the cars, you know, miles of lines of cars at food banks, uh, I think people learn something about hunger in this country that they they didn't know before, and I was just, yes. just curious if that aligns with your sense of it. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's a it's a shame that it took the pandemic uh, and all of the other calamity uh, that it uh, that it caused for folks to appreciate just how vulnerable so many of us are, and it's and and that the vulnerability wasn't limited to you know people in neighborhoods like I grew up uh, on uh, in on the south side of Chicago, but they were. There are food lines and food pantries in the suburbs as well. Um, the fragility and the connectedness we all have, you know, the, the, the fact that, that there were, that what enabled some people to sort of shelter in place um, and work remotely if they could was the fact that somebody else was getting up and driving the trucks uh, full of food to the local grocery store and somebody at the grocery store was stocking the shelves and um, often um, at minimum wage um, and, uh, and without health care, that there are so many gaps in the way we, um, we are as a, uh, as a statewide or, or national uh, community. And, and my hope, Billy, is that our famously short attention span in this country um, won't forget what we learned, those um, uh, insights and others that you've mentioned when we are emerged from the, uh, from the pandemic, because frankly, we got a lot of unfinished business in this country and, and it will take all of us um, to, get it, uh, to get it done. And it seems like what you're describing has actually given President Biden some of the political capital he needs to do big things. I'm thinking, for example, of the child tax credit, which is estimated to lift uh, you know, millions of kids out of poverty and above the, the poverty line. And it needs to be permanent. Poverty. And it needs to be permanent. I think that's the next... I think that's the next battle. But are, are you optimistic that um, in terms of what you were just saying, that we'll have kind of the, the political will to finally address some of these underlying causes of why kids and families are, are hungry in the first place? Because ultimately, it seems to me at least we've got to deal with uh, not just hunger, but we've got to understand that it's a symptom of poverty. And that means we've got to deal with education and we've got to deal with affordable housing and Healthcare, it gets pretty tangled up, but but you've had to deal with all of those issues, of course, as a as a governor. Um, maybe share with us how you think they come together in terms of the people who are most vulnerable in our country. Well, a couple of things. I I, I think that the um, the interconnectedness of of policy, and I say that as somebody who doesn't believe, I think like most people, that government is about solving every problem in everybody's life. It's about government understanding its role and our understanding the role of our government in helping us help ourselves. And one of the things that happens in, in policymaking, I found, Billy, is that we tend to talk about it in silos. You know, healthcare is over here and housing is over there and, uh, and roads and bridges are, uh, are someplace else, when in fact, in real life, all of those things interconnect. It's one of the reasons why 
I love the Biden administration's broad definition of infrastructure, right? Because um, if you think of it, infrastructure um, ought to be about uh, the the things that government builds that enable personal ambition and private investment. And that is going to include roads and bridges and uh, and rail. It's also going to be broadband. In many respects, it's also healthcare uh, and housing. It's the things that enable us to lift ourselves and our and our uh, families. And that has been for a long time, and I think needs to be again a central tenet of what it means to be uh, an American uh, and what it means to be America. So I feel like the Biden administration is off to a really really strong start, and I'm I am cautiously optimistic. And the reason I, I, I add the caution is not because I don't uh, believe that they are taking on issues that, are, that have broad support and in ways that have broad support on a bipartisan or nonpartisan um, basis. If the, if the polls meet, tell us anything, they tell us that. But because at the, you know, in the Congress, in the sort of Washington bubble, um, division as a Political strategy is the is the uh, is the name of the game for at least one of the parties today, and that's really worrisome. I think it's really worrisome to a lot of Republicans too. How do we get How do we get past that? How, how do we solve that? That's, to me, that seems to be the kind of the the Uber Meta question of uh, how do we get um, beyond the divisiveness of what we've lived through the last number of years uh, and and get people to seek common ground. You actually did a pretty good job of that as as governor. I'd say that was your that was your way of being. That was uh, what people felt like they were getting from you was a, a really honest uh, discussion and an honest effort to find where people could come together. How do we do that on the national stage? Well, first of all, I really appreciate your your saying that about what we tried to do when I was in office um, in Massachusetts. We didn't always get it right. Nobody nobody ever does. But I I feel like the um, the idea of building bridges um, that we can where we can meet each other, um, frankly, is is that's the kind of person I've tried to be, um, let alone in public life. And and so I think. Some of it starts there with a genuine curiosity, right? I, I, I had a bunch of ideas, still do, but I don't think any one person, any one office holder, any one party has a corner on all the, all the best ideas. And I think if there's a, <laughs> there's a kind of a quality about public life, and you know, I'm mindful, and uh, uh, your listeners may not know, this is, that was the first and only elected office I ever held. Um, and what I found is that there's a jobs like that are kind of a blend of substance and performance art. And at the beginning, I just wanted to be about the substance. And I thought the performance art was just background noise. And I had to learn that there was a certain amount of the performance art I had to master in order to get attention paid to the substance. I think what's been happening in the last little while is that the performance art is everything and the substance has vanished. Say what you mean by performance art, because I, I, you know, I was in politics for a lot of years. I think I know what you're talking about. But for those who weren't, uh, share what you mean. So for me, it was about understanding the importance of the of the backdrop. You know, you made an announcement about this or that. It was important to be in a place and with people who were affected by that. And if that took a whole lot of time to uh, orchestrate and develop and so forth, then then, uh, then the policy announcement would probably wait for that. Because if it was just an announcement that we were going to do this or we'd undertaken um, this initiative... Um, and just sort of read off like a list, it wasn't going to capture people's attention. It wasn't going to get the media's uh, attention, what have you. I think what performance art has become um, and, 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 and is a sort of exaggerated version where it is all about outrage. It is all about, you know, the, the dig or the insult uh, or the affront to the other side and reaction to it. 
So the, the um, you know, we had some of this in Massachusetts as well. I remember we had a signature initiative around um, promoting and developing our life sciences uh, industry because of this concentration of universities and research institutions, teaching hospitals, the highly educated uh, workforce. It was really kind of a perfect uh, environment to grow an industry um, that was about um, moving cures and therapies and relief from the from the uh, from the laboratory to the bench side. Huge impact on human health. Huge job creator uh, as well. And we had a big proposal about investing over ten years in this in a variety of ways, in partnership with the private sector and with uh, and with the universities and so forth. And um, and it was highly popular and stalled out in the in the legislature. And we'd had a big breakthrough in the negotiations, and um, it was time to announce that <laughs> it had just gotten a haircut, <laughs> and I'd gotten a buzz cut for the first time. It was really because you know I could never find time to go to the barbershop, <laughs> so I said just take it all off, and um, and we make this big announcement about this high-profile initiative that's been stalled out in the legislature, and we've just had a breakthrough, and the headline in the newspaper the next day was um, New Dome Under the Dome <laughs> with a picture <laughs> of my haircut. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes the media is just not interested in the substance. It's interested in the, um, in the you know, flashy, or in this case, kind of dumb sideshow. Um, and I think an awful lot of people in public life recognize the attention-grabbing nature of the sideshow, and that's all they do now. So, what, so what's that like for you as a human being as you're kind of learning uh, what you have to do to be a successful governor? Um, the, the performance art part of it must have been a uh, that had to be like an acquired learning, right? That that wasn't. I mean, you're you're a substantive guy, you're a policy guy. So that did that. I'm assuming it didn't come naturally to you, but you had to master it. I don't, I, I wouldn't say it didn't. I, well, maybe it's true. It didn't come naturally to me. It felt a little like you were um, trivializing important things. Um, but I, and I, I think, you know, remembering that part of the job is, is being um, a good leader for your own team. I would, who would just get so mad and, you know, just want to react to this or that, or somebody had just insulted me or insulted something we tried to do and they want to respond in kind. And I would just say, take a deep breath because all this policy is not that interesting or important in the abstract. It matters where it actually touches people. And we've got to be about how do we get the policy to go all the way to the point where it touches people. Stay focused on that. And, in, and that may mean that we may not get all the news we'd like about the policy, but we'd, get, we'd have what we were there for, which was not a bunch of headlines we could brag about later on, but about what you had done that was transformative or uh, significant in enabling people to help themselves. And I think in that respect, we got a lot of good stuff, a lot of good stuff done. And I learned to be patient, relatively so, um, about um, about the overemphasis on performance. We are so grateful for our partnership with the Chrysler brand and the amazing support they've shown us during the COVID-19 pandemic. Chrysler helped to raise over $3.5 million to benefit the work of No Kid Hungry, and they did it through event sponsorships and their promotion of donating $50 for every Chrysler Pacifica sold. It's amazing what we continue to do with partners like Chrysler. To learn more about Chrysler and to receive a gift voucher towards a new Chrysler Pacifica, Visit Chrysler and NoKidHungry.com. You know, one of the things that both when I worked in government and, and certainly in the nonprofit sector, uh, I've observed is that in many cases that the, those who are kind of the most vulnerable and uh, the most voiceless or if not voiceless have the most trouble getting their voices heard uh, are, are often... Um, 
uh, it's a challenge to serve them well because there are so many other forces in our political system that are uh, talking over them, that are making it hard to stay focused on that. And so uh, I'm assuming as a governor, that kind of leadership has to come right from the top to say, um, you know, we've got to focus on the interests of these folks, even if they don't have lobbyists, even if they don't vote in decisive numbers. How did you, how did you manage to stay focused on helping the people who in the state who needed it the most? You know, Billy, we ran um, very purposefully a, uh, a so-called grassroots campaign, meaning meeting people where they were in every sense of that term, where they lived, where they worked, where they, uh, where they were financially and economically and kind of uh, emotionally, if you will. And, um, and we spent a lot of time listening. And that was both a philosophical choice and a practical one. It was practical because I was running as an outsider. You know, our dynamic here in, uh, in Massachusetts is, um, is much less Democrat-Republican than it is insider-outsider. And it's very tight, right, inward-looking kind of political establishment. So for a newcomer, especially somebody who was going to, you know, presuming to cut the line, um, the only way I was going to get any traction was at the, at the grassroots by taking my time and going everywhere and listening to, to everyone. But I also found that um, I learned a ton. You know, there were ways in which the, um, the, what I thought was uh, important was just different, or it had people placed a different emphasis on this or that aspect uh, of it. And, and, and we tried to govern in that way, meaning staying out and with people and listening uh, to people. It was interesting because I would notice, you know, I was, I think I was, it surprised a lot of people that I was out and around so much, just um, uh, not just at events, but just in the company of other people um, and, uh, and without being announced. And, and I remember I would get this kind of double take when people would see me um, Billy, and I, I attributed um, the first reaction to the fact that I'm taller on TV. And uh, and then, you know, you could see people just processing. That's the governor, you know, and, and they, would, they were ready to say something. And um, more often than not, I got neither a compliment nor a critique. More often than not, I got some tiny, often intimate insight into how they were living their lives just in a minute or two. And if you do that a lot, you start to get a sense of where the consensus is about what really is important, where you need to dial it up or other places where you need to dial it down. So I think for, for us, there was a lot of this kind of, you know, it's time to get out of the office and take a walk and, um, uh, or, you know, take a drive across, uh, across the state and just be around um, uh, folks a lot so that we could... Um, we could just kind of check ourselves uh, about whether the policy was actually touching people. Well, you know, one of the reasons I was so eager to have you on this podcast, Governor, is I feel like you're one of the very few uh, elected officials who has, uh, I guess, what I would think of as, you know, a multidimensional sense of how to impact people's lives because you were doing it as governor. Uh, but then when you left governor, you went to Bain Capital to lead up their impact investing work. And I always think, uh, and I, I think of something that uh, former Senator Bill Bradley used to talk about in terms of public life, he used to talk about the three legs of the stool, the, the government sector, the private sector, and the nonprofit sector. And the private sector often has such a powerful impact or can have such a powerful impact on a, just a wide range of social issues from environment to poverty to education. And so uh, when you went to Bain Capital to lead their impact investing work, I, I feel like you, you kind of put a spotlight on a very, a very uh, different way, but a very important way of, of changing people's lives uh, through impact investing and what, you know, many people, you know, kind of uh, nickname a double bottom line, uh, you know, generating wealth, but also uh, doing good with it. And then I know when you um, ran for president in 2020, you left Bain Capital. Now you've returned. Uh, I don't know if you're in that in that same role, but talk a little bit about the impact investing 
work and why that was attractive to you? Sure. Well, first of all, Billy, you're, you're right. We These three sectors, um, uh, the, the uh, private sector, the public sector, non non uh, not-for-profits. I've worked in all three in my career, um, much, much more in the private and nonprofit sector than I have in the, uh, uh, in the public sector. So, um, and also I guess I'd say, you know, when, when the three collaborate, um, then solutions can be incredibly impactful and, uh, uh, and creative. Frankly, the challenges we face, um, from a climate crisis to, um, uh, income and wealth inequality that's just stalled out. No one is, um, uh, what's the right way to put it? They're, they're probably, I guess I'd say no one sector is going to be able to solve those issues alone. And business has to be part of uh, solutions because it is so freaking big. <laughs> it's such a big presence, the private sector is. In all of our lives, it's where most of us work, and uh, and from which most of us, you know, feed, house, clothe, amuse ourselves, and so on. And, and it's where wealth is created. And yes. Then, then the yes. question then the question becomes, what do we do with that wealth? But that's where the wealth gets created. So you know, on that point, I would say business norms. You know, the kind of quarter to quarter short termism, um, I think, has caused or aggravated some of the issues we worry most about uh, today, from environmental degradation even to uh, income inequality. And, uh, and I think that there has been, a, there, for a long time, a presumption that it would be impossible to focus on those other bottom lines, as you said, um, because you can't make money that way. And I thought to myself, I, I've always wondered whether that was a false choice. I've always been skeptical whether that was a true choice. And I thought, what if we could demonstrate? What if we could prove that that's a false choice? If you could get superior returns and measurable, demonstrable, uh, human or environmental positive impact at the same time. And that's really what impact investing uh, is about. And that's the business I founded at, uh, uh, at Bain Capital. And um, and it has continued to grow. There are 25 folks on the team now and, um, and, and a great, great record to show for this. And I think it is, it is having the follow-on benefit of raising um, everywhere uh, the questions uh, about, well, if you, if you can substitute long-term value for short-term gain, if you can think about it that way and deliver the same financial return to the investors who are just looking for financial return, well, then why is it all investing isn't done that way. Well, I'm sure there's lots of examples of uh, investments you've made that have impact. Are there one or two favorites that kind of crystallize the power that impact investing can have on on a community and on people's lives? You know, it's interesting. It's it, like being governor. You you know, you have to love every part of the yeah. <laughs> Commonwealth the same, and so I have to love all the all the investments the same. But for example, there's a lot of data that shows that. Um, the lack of adequate um, uh, oral hygiene and dental care in poor kids has an impact not just on health but on learning, and it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible thing to have to do without. And so there were a number of, uh, think of them as office uh, of chains of dental offices for sale, and we thought, well, let's invest in one, and uh, and steer it to. Um, to serving poor kids. And after a time, we found one actually in Texas whose whole business model was about serving um, the Medicaid population and doing so in an enormously efficient and respectful way that made it possible, uh, you know, that, that dealt with the, uh, with the disruption in, uh, in a mom's life of having to come and sit in a waiting room while their kid is getting a, uh, a cleaning and then having to come back, come back if they needed uh, if the child needed orthodontry and so on. Um, and they put together just this terrific model that went right into making services available, um, consultations available for the parents while they were waiting for their kids' uh, dental work to be, uh, to be done. Wildly profitable, very, very efficient, very, very dignified and demonstrable impact on the lives of poor kids 
um, going forward. That's just one example, and there are many, many others. And, and arguably, um, the, kind of the capital sector can permit something like that to scale in ways equal to maybe sometimes even better than government could. Well, that's exactly the point, right? They, that most businesses need capital to scale. This is one of the reasons why so many um, black and brown entrepreneurs, um, though successful, have been limited to smaller um, scale enterprise because the accessibility of the capital markets um, to those communities and the entrepreneurs to um, uh, to those resources has been so limited. You see a lot of that beginning to change um, uh, in the, at least in, in word, we'll see about deed in the, in the last year. You know, we tried to do something, Governor, and are still working on it, and it's been quite successful so far. That's almost the kind of the mirror image opposite of what you described. At Share Our Strength, we created a subsidiary more than 20 years ago called Community Wealth Partners. And the idea was that nonprofits can actually be engaged in uh, business activities. And in the, in the course of pursuing their missions, they often develop assets that have a, a marketplace value. And sometimes because they're nonprofits, they may not see the marketplace value or, or want to do anything with it. But the idea was, to, so if you think of kind of a classic example is, is you know, Ben and Jerry's uses a bakery and Yonkers called Greystone Bakery to make the brownies that go into Ben and Jerry's ice cream. So Greystone Bakery is a nonprofit, but engaged in for business, you know, business, pro-business activities. And, uh, and what we realized, and I think you're a kind of a classic example of it, is that there are ways to create wealth that uh, we tend to only think of wealth as individual or corporate wealth. We call it community wealth partners, community wealth partners, because it's creating community wealth. It's wealth that goes back into the, the community. And so the chain of you know, dental clinics that you've just described, uh, hopefully it makes money. If it makes money, there can be more of them, but it also creates this community wealth that makes our communities stronger and healthier and, and better and the, the kids and families in them. You know, two things, first of all, kudos uh, to you and the, and, the, and the team on the community wealth concept as well as the, the business, because that's exactly, that's exactly right. And we used to understand this. You know, the uh, first thing I'd say just um, is that about when you think about the things we used to think of as just nice to haves, maybe driven by some regulation or advocate, um, uh, think about clean tech. Right, that was once upon a time, you know, recycling and and uh, and uh, and composting, and so just kind of nice things to do that we thought were a contribution to um, a better uh, environment over over time. Turns out, if you can scale those and other uh, initiatives, you can actually save <laughs> humankind. And it is it's one of the reasons why I think Biden is exactly right when he has clean tech central to how he's thinking about infrastructure uh, investing because there are enormous opportunities to create jobs and wealth. And if we are intentional about it, to create jobs and wealth in places where that has not been happening for too long. I mean, imagine showing up in coal country, for example, and saying to folks, look, no more of this business about, uh, you know, someone attacking the coal industry. We didn't the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stone. We got a better idea. And now we have a better idea. And here's your part of that I idea. Or in my old neighborhood in the south side of Chicago, same sort of, uh, same sort of thing. And it brings me back to this notion of community. Because when I was growing up, you know, every child belonged to every adult on the block. Right? If, if you messed up down the street in front of Ms. Jones, she'd go upside your head as if you were hers. And then she'd call home, so you got it two times. And what those adults were trying to teach us, I believe, is that community is understanding the stake that you have in your neighbor's dreams and struggles, as well as your own. And so much of that, I think, is the opportunity leaders can bring in every way, public, private, non nonprofit, in their behavior, in their, in their rhetoric. Um, and the sooner we discover rediscover that stake we have in each other, the more likely it is that the big challenges that face us um, can be met and overcome. 
That's really poignant for me to hear you talk about this because I rem- I grew up in in Pittsburgh and in a little neighborhood where I, I have so many memories of other neighbors other than my parents telling me when it was time to go inside, right? When the streetlights came on and it got dark or when it was time to go to bed. My parents were, of course, on top of it as well, but everybody did have that sense of all these kids belong to, to all of us and we're going to look out for them. And uh, that seems to be missing a little bit today. You know, when you think of the, the the work you're doing on impact investing, I guess when you started it, did you also feel a little bit like um, kind of a pioneer that had to prove the point for others? Because it seems to me that what you're doing is not just important for Bain Capital and the businesses you invest in, but it's important in kind of proof of concept so that uh, it is, is one of your goals. You're, you're probably not trying to stir up too much competition for paying capital, but is one of your goals to show that this can actually work for others and that, you know, if others around the country were doing this as well, we, we not only create the wealth that we aspire to create, but we have the impact on the community. We Yes, is the short answer. I mean, we, the, the, the field is, I'd say, probably more mature uh, outside the United States and Europe. Um, to some extent in Asia uh, and in Africa than here in the U.S. But there are a number of smaller, um, if you will, boutique or specialty investment shops that have been doing this in the, in the U.S. Um, the fund that we, uh, that we launched at Bain Capital was the first time a major, well-known um, financial investment, sort of institutional investment firm uh, had stepped into the, uh, into the field. And it was important to me and important to um, uh, my colleagues at Bain that we do it right, that it have integrity, uh, that it be serious, that it be scaled appropriately, not too big for, you know, just to be flashy or, or, or too small. So it just seemed like it was a project, but a real um, business where um, an awful lot of uh, uh, investing uh, talent um, from inside the firm and talent from outside the firm um, helped to make it a success. And I will say that once, uh, that now, what is it, five, six years uh, later, almost all of the uh, big institutional firms have have a uh, a business uh, of of one flavor or another like this, um, and it is um, and it's become a part of the of the uh, language of responsible um, uh, investing and uh, and business leadership at. You know, places as august as um, as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce or the Business Roundtable, hmm. and and as a, I feel like as a, a, you're a leader who has such a unique bird's eye view of this. Uh, is impact investing something that should just be left to the private sector, or or because you also were a governor, uh, are there things government can do to um, accelerate or facilitate? the private sector doing this or should government just stay out of their hair? Well, I, I don't think government is in most cases a very good um, investor. It's not, it's not the, in this sense, um, in terms of trying to generate a, uh, a return. Although I will say that uh, there was a very early seed investment that we made in our life sciences initiative here in Massachusetts in a company called Moderna, which, um, has done pretty well. In I the would last say so. Um, but what government can do, and and frankly, what did happen in the Obama administration is that the rules can be made so there's room for this kind of um, investing. Very small um, uh, and obscure thing to many people, but there was a rule, um, I think under, um, forget what it was, in the Labor Department, under ERISA, um, which talked about what the standards were for a responsible um, uh, investment, and it was all about maximizing financial return. Um, those rules were amended during the Obama uh, administration um, so that it was about maximizing multi-stakeholder returns. I'm summarizing. That's not exactly um, the language, but the idea was to be intentional about those other bottom lines, those social and environmental bottom lines, and that rule change made it possible for big investors like pension funds and so forth to consider putting some of their money uh, into impact investing and not just regular way um, uh, um, private investments as they had in the uh, in the past and that helped um, 
sort of um, stabilize or not stabilize, establish, you know, sort of um, institutionalize, I guess is what I want to say, the field of impact investing. I think that sort of thing um, is important and uh, is an important contribution of government. Um, Two other government related things I want to ask you about. You're co-chairing the Serve America Together campaign with General Stan McChrystal, my dear friend, and I know your dear friend, Alan Casey, the co-founder of City Year, when I told him that you were going to be on the podcast, he said, oh, you, you, you've got to ask Governor Patrick about uh, Serve America and what you're trying to do to, um, uh, you know, I guess, um, sc- really scale uh, national service opportunities. That's it. I mean, I, I feel I feel really um, strongly about the importance and the timeliness of scaling um, national service. And, and when I say that, you know, I don't mean necessarily military service. People want to do that. That's fine. But um, uh, service, you know, in, 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 uh, um, uh, in support of any number of our unmet domestic needs. And when you think about how divided we, we are, how, how, easily it is for people to accept the cartoon version that's painted of people we don't know. Part of the reason we're so divided is that we don't know each other and we don't have mechanisms to know each other. And the notion of having a couple people um, who are from different parts of the country, different backgrounds, different ways of looking at the world, uh, not just in a circle talking about those differences, but working alongside each other to meet an unmet need, learning to look outside themselves, learning what they have in common uh, with the folks who um, uh, whose needs they're trying to uh, they're trying to meet is a transformative opportunity. I think um, we have all the data shows, Billy, that we're not ready to make this mandatory, as as is the case in other uh, in other places. But making it really realistically available, you know, paying people, giving them uh, health care, maybe even child care if that's what's uh, necessary so that we can make it possible for people to step out of whatever, you know, career path they're on or whatever um, period of indecision um, they're in uh, and do something meaningful for the greater good alongside somebody different, I think is a pretty important thing. And it's got to be a great point of pride for you that City Year was invented in Massachusetts, that became the model for AmeriCorps. Um, and, and so your work going forward with, with uh, General McChrystal will be to raise awareness and do the advocacy to continue to, to grow this? That's right. And we have some proposed legislation, um, which the uh, the Biden administration has shown a lot of interest in. And indeed, I think all of the um, of the Democratic candidates um, for the nomination um, had uh, pledged in one form or another a commitment to uh, to increase um, and expand national service. And expanding is not just the numbers, right? Right. It's making it possible so that you don't have to just be uh, the child of wealth to be able to do this because somebody is subsidizing you from, uh, from home. Um, and I think all of those are important uh, dimensions going forward. You know, at, at Share Our Strength in our early days, we uh, had the benefit of some returned Peace Corps members who joined our staff, and then uh, more recently, some uh, AmeriCorps alum. And I love hiring young people uh, who have had that experience because they tend to be self-reliant, confident, can deal with a, just a, you know, a whole range of issues. It's just a phenomenal rite of passage for, for young people, and it's still uh, available to far too few. So I'm, I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. And I was on the, the board of City Year for about 12 years uh, and got a pretty good glimpse into the impact it has in changing young people's lives and putting them on a different trajectory. And That's um, right. I'm just, I'm so glad you're doing this. Well, and thank you for your service and Alan for his brilliant um, uh, concept, because um, you're right. The impact on the people served is of one lasting kind. The impact on those offering, uh, providing the service is of another lasting kind. And in both cases, um, lasting good. Well, Governor, I don't know where you find the time or energy, but you're also now working on, uh, I think, assisting the Biden administration on uh, technology and the future of technology. Can you tell us about that? 
I can. I mean, it's funny because I don't think of myself as a technologist, but uh, I am aware of the uh, proliferation of technology in so many dimensions of our uh, of our lives: communication and entertainment and uh, healthcare and education and and on and on. And um, you know, a lot of it is about convenience and ease and being modern and so forth. And but it's not all working for us or not working well enough. Many use it responsibly, some don't. And um, when you think about the, uh, the proliferation of disinformation and, the, uh, and, and how that's affected uh, our sense of national union and purpose, our willingness to compromise um, politically, just in, as one example, uh, concerns me a lot. Um, our uh, our colleague uh, Jim Steyer, who's the founder and CEO of Common Sense Media out in San Francisco, had been in conversations with the incoming administration and with the acting chair of the FCC about all of these issues. And essentially, their their response was: the first thing we have to do is beat COVID, and that's what we're going to focus on right now because. Everything else, the reopening of the economy, the reopening of schools and so forth, so connected to that. Um, so if you and others can gather data and start to frame up what our policy ought to be on a host of uh, uh, issues, that would be a big help. And that's where the commission came from. So Jim, Margaret, Stelling, Mar- Margaret Snellings, who's the former um, uh, Secretary of Education in the George W. Bush administration and I are the co-chairs, and we are having conversations, um, big public ones like the town hall tomorrow, um, hosted at the Kennedy School, to uh, lots and lots of private conversations uh, all around the country over the course of the next uh, couple months, and we hope to come together with a set of um, set of recommendations by the end of the summer. That will, and it sounds like that, that they'll have a kind of a bipartisan consensus behind them, which will make That's them the idea. both more That's valuable idea. and really stand out in today's world. Uh, fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Governor, it sounds like we've got to wrap up. It sounds like you've just found uh, almost the perfect blend between uh, public service, uh, given what you're involved in with national service and technology and impact investing uh, and the private sector. Uh, I hope the balance shifts to even more public service in the future because there we, you go we, again. We, we, we need you. We need you. Uh, we, we, we need you, especially right now. Uh, just one last thing I'm going to ask you, and then I know I need to let you go, but it, it's been so important to our work at, uh, at Share Our Strength, which is to understand that uh, issues of hunger and poverty are also related to issues of, of race and systemic racism. And, and what can uh, those of us who are trying to steer in the right direction uh, do? We've done a lot at Share Strength in terms of DEI trainings and in terms of really trying to understand uh, why we have some of the poverty and structural racism issues and systemic racism issues that we do. Uh, what's your advice on how the country needs to reckon with this issue so that we, we really sustain some of the progress that I think we've seen over the last couple of months, at least in terms of increased awareness that we need to confront it? Well, I think, I think Billy increased awareness is the, is the place to start. It's the necessary, um, place to, uh, to start. And I think that means a willingness to listen. I think we also have to learn that um, confronting uh, the um, well, confronting the issue of racism, confronting some of our, you know, smellier origins, if you will, does not mean that this country is not great. Indeed, it's the it's the willingness to confront and overcome the. Um, uh, the issues and challenges that are in conflict with our founding ideals of equality, opportunity, and fair play that make us great. You can hear the dog agreeing in the background. Um, and so I think a, a, um, it is important what, you're, uh, what you're, you and others are doing in terms of DEI training uh, and about being intentional in, uh, about including talent we know 
exists in every community and the good work we are all trying uh, to do. Um, but there will be a period, uh, or and there will be a period of uncomfortable listening that has to happen um, for, uh, uh, for black and brown people to feel seen and heard and, and understood. And I would I just say one other thing, you know, one of the I, I describe it as the curse of being black is that we're constantly having to ask ourselves whether the things that go sideways or wrong in our lives are on, are on account of race. One of the more exa- exhausting things is to have people tell us, no, they couldn't be that. And I think there there is one of the one of the impacts of that George Floyd videotape that horrific scene um, is that it caused an awful lot of people to ask themselves, well, you know, actually it might be that. And, and just that is, um, is a, is a way of acknowledging um, we're here. Uh, we are, we're seen and it's, uh, and some of the things we're experiencing are not, uh, are not a figment of our imagination. They are actual challenges that are in conflict, as I say, with what it ought to mean to be an American. And that our, our aspiration to be great um, requires confronting that and acknowledging and dealing with it. And, and I think, but as you said, it, it doesn't mean that we can't be great. I think this is a country in a way sort of founded with a conscience. Um, and I have more to say about that than we have time. Um, but um, in that sense, I think it's not possible to be to be great unless we're good. Well said, Governor. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for your wisdom. Thanks for your leadership. Thanks for getting Massachusetts to the place that uh, you got it. And uh, hopefully our nation finds additional ways to tap into your uh, talent and leadership in the future. We need you. We've been talking with uh, former Governor Duvall Patrick on Add Passion and Stir. Uh, So grateful for you taking the time with us, sir. Grateful for you, Billy. Thank you. Please keep up your great work. Thanks. We will. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, you can go to adpassionandstir.com and find previous episodes and rate us and rank us and share with your friends on behalf of uh, Share Our Strength in the No Get Hungry campaign and our producers, District Productive. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Ad Passion and Stir. Mm-hmm.